0: And so, yeah, that was, there was that. And then there was just how much of that institution was obsessed with all kinds of sort of external and super, uh, super, uh, good God. John, this is going in the trailer. Superfluous, super, superfluous, um, nonsensical
1: stuff. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney.
0: Well, hello everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I am one of your two hosts. I'm Nat, and with me as always is my brother John, rocking the flannel and a whole lot of gray in his beard. What's up, dog? What's up, dog? That's a, that's a different entrance. I thought I'd change things up a bit.
2: Yeah, you know, you're uh, supposed to
0: say, I don't know, what's up, dog? What's up with you? And ne- never mind, it's just what's uh, up, it's dog? A whole- I
2: don't know. <laughs> it's, anyway, you've got
0: some up dog on your cup. Never mind. we'll stop with the office references. I do. (laughs) So anyway, hey, we are back with another exciting, exhilarating, fun-filled, amazing uh, episode of This Is Not Church. We have an amazing guest with us today. Uh, I'm I'm gonna introduce her real quick, and then we're not gonna waste too much time. I'm gonna let her get right into all of the awesomeness that is about to ensue. Um, But with us today is Carol Wimmer. Uh, As a child born and raised in Eastern Pennsylvania, Carol developed a deep affinity for all aspects of creation. She sensed the presence of God most strongly when investigating nature. As an adult, uh, Carol spent 22 years directing music and theater within the Lutheran and Presbyterian denominations. From 1996 to 2000, she experienced an intense time of spiritual instruction in the areas of time, language, and organization. The imparted insights have the potential to reorient the thinking and direction of the Bride of Christ. Therefore, Carol writes from a futuristic and universal perspective. From 2005 to 2010, Carol presented several academic papers within the Society of Biblical Literature. Her research was entered into the Encyclopedia of Sciences and Religions in 2013. She has since published The Net, an organized vision for the church of tomorrow. Uh, The Clock, a timekeeping tool for the church of tomorrow, and The Key, a common tongue for the human spirit, is forthcoming in 2022. Carol also wrote the poem, When I Say I'm a Christian, which has been translated into 16 of the world's languages. She lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with her husband of 52 years. They have two grown children and three grandchildren. Welcome to the show, Carol.
1: Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You're welcome.
0: Uh, my, my personal um, sort of bio with Carol is I, I met Carol uh, first and foremost. I met her online, part of a group that we were in on Facebook, um, where we were just diving sort of deep, and I was anyway, deep drinking from the fire hose of some some real new theological stuff for me. And Carol was integral in in helping me navigate some of those waters. And then we met face to face one time in Kansas City uh, at a conference that featured uh, Brian Zahn, Brad Jursak, and Michael Harden, called the Crucified God Conference. And uh, man, just uh, one of those people that you meet, and you automatically go, "Hey." I like you. There's something that that resonates, you know, like I just, I just, there was an affinity uh, immediately when I met Carol. And so, and we've been, you know, friends on Facebook ever since, obviously, and we, we communicate once in a while, but we've been trying desperately to get her on the show and finally got the schedules to work out. So I'm super glad. Um, I don't have a real good opening question except our standard opening question, which is um, just tell us a little bit about yourself aside from the bio I just read, but just give us, if you would, you know, a little bit about you and kind of your spiritual journey?
1: So, that's a a really loaded question, and sometimes I I wonder, it is, and sometimes I wonder how it is that I got to where I am. You know, my earliest recollections of being a human being started when I was so young, uh, before kindergarten, I know, I had a sense of the presence of God. And I cannot explain this other than it's just the way I was wired. My parents did not speak of God in our home. If there was a Bible in our home, I don't know where it might have been. Once in a while, we went to church, and when we did, it was a Lutheran church. There were two things I knew. When I was a kid, there were two things that I felt confident and sure of. One was God was with me. And in a sense, God was in me. But also God was the creator of everything I saw. And I had this backyard. I've got to tell you, it was my personal Eden. I had a fantastic backyard that stretched for a mile uh, because it, it, we our back my backyard bordered a farmer's field, and sometimes the farmer would plant wheat. Sometimes it would be tall corn stalks that would grow. Sometimes he, it would just be a meadow for cows. But the the farm stretched for a, a whole mile, and and then and then beyond the farm was the foothills of a mountain. So I had the vast sky at night with stars. I had rainbows uh, that would be so vivid coming off the mountain after a thunderstorm. There was a stream that ran through the property, and I can remember going with cups to pick uh, toads or, or minnows or whatever I could find. Um, uh, I, I can remember just interacting with every single aspect of nature, dancing and hiding under a weeping wall under the weeping willow tree that grew in our backyard, picking cherries off of a cherry tree, smelling the lilacs underneath my bedroom window. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but that was my paradise. So my youngest memories was such a deep connection with God, the God of creation. So I met God through the book of nature. It had nothing to do, my relationship with God had nothing to do with the Bible for years and years and years and years. So um, the other thing that I sensed about myself was that, now, please don't laugh, but I sensed that there was something I was supposed to do for God. And I didn't know why I sensed that, but it was like this little, you know, people say seeds, you know, this, this little thought that was there from as early as I can remember. There's something I'm supposed to do for God. So anyway, that was, that was my childhood. I, I sang in the children's choir and I, I, at the church, and I loved it. I rode my bike back and forth to get there because my, my parents really didn't, you know, my parents were not active in my faith. They, uh, so they just didn't talk about it. And maybe the one thing that I should say publicly is that when I was two years old, my mother was diagnosed with, um, late onset paranoid schizophrenia. And so my, I was raised by a mother who was mentally ill. So from an early age, and this I believe might be part of. I was kind of thrown into the deep end of the spiritual pool at an early age because my mom's illness caused me, as a child, to have to discern between what is reality when schizophrenia is is a pretty serious mental illness, and so um, I had to discern what is reality, what is delusion, what is hallucination, what is paranoia. I had to distinguish between those things, and that is really, that's discernment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, that's a
0: lot for a, for a child to have to process, it, isn't it?
1: it? It was, it was, and there's a part of me that thinks that perhaps because of what was going on inside the walls of my home, maybe that's what made the outside so inviting to me. Mm, makes sense, um, it, you know. But anyway, so you grow up, and we, and my husband and I, got married. We had two kids, and as an adult, because I had enjoyed music so very much, and I, w- I was educated in music, and so what I did was. The first, as we moved um, with my husband's job, the first thing I decided to do was direct music. And it was a Lutheran congregation at first. Um, And then after that, I uh, migrated to the Presbyterian denomination many years later. But, But that's the first time that I bumped into the hierarchy and the patriarchy of the church. And as a child, I didn't see it. As an adult trying to navigate the leadership of the church and being a director of music, there were many, many times when I had my wings clipped. And I started feeling, I I didn't, I I don't think I struggled with self-esteem too badly as a child, but as a young adult, I started struggling with self-esteem because what, because I kept feeling in my vocation of choice, I kept feeling as though there was something either wrong with me or that I needed to be controlled in some way. Now, my dad was a compassionate father model. And my dad was just a, a merciful, gracious human being. Oh, and I also have to say that in the Lutheran church, um, the, the one thing I learned in the Lutheran church was salvation through grace. So I never had, there was never a time when my image of God was anything to fear or I I never had that, you know? So there was nothing ever that I needed to deconstruct, even though I know that most of the people that you have on your podcast have gone through deconstruction. And I deeply, deeply, deeply respect the people who are doing that. It's just that I never had to. But anyway, what I had to deconstruct, if, if anything at all, was what is this hierarchy all about? And what is this patriarchy all about? That's That was where I had to, and my dad didn't really prepare me for that because he always treated me as an equal. And so it took me a long, 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 long time in the in the church ministry to discover for myself that there really wasn't anything wrong with me. It was my sense of equality that was that had to be resisted by the patriarchy. It was my sense of, I, I felt like an equal, and it was like, as a woman, I wasn't supposed to feel that, or wasn't allowed to feel that. But in 1981, my husband and I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma from Pennsylvania. And that is when my eyes were open to evangelicalism. I never knew it existed, being on the East Coast. Uh, We just, on the East Coast, it was largely Catholic, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian. All of my experiences were with mainline denominations. When I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, I found myself in the middle of the Bible Belt. And when I heard the messaging, uh, when I heard the theology, it scared the living bejeebies out of me. I said, I do not know what this is, but whatever this is, I have got to wrap my kid, my arms around my kids and say, I don't know what you're hearing on the playground. I don't know what you're gonna hear in school, but you are not going to hell. Something happened then um, in the course of the 22 years of ministry that I had. In 1988, I was standing in my kitchen and um, a tsunami of grief hit me out of the blue, and I started bawling, wailing. If anyone had been in the vicinity, my kids were at school and my, hus- my husband was at work, so I was by myself. If there had been a camera on that scene, I, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm standing there, uh, I. I- Crying like crazy. And I, and the tears were so intense. And in the middle of it all, I thought, why is this happening to me? What am I, what am I grieving? And it, it, it was the church universal. It was the bride of Christ. And all I kept thinking was in this new location where I was living, There was so much judgment that I heard. There was so much arrogance, so much certainty. And I thought, I don't know where this is coming from, but it isn't right. It's not the right spirit. But then I look at the mainline denomination, and I'm saying the same thing. There's so much hierarchy. There's so much patriarchy. There's so much... Everything is wrong. There is not one single aspect of the church universal. Not one aspect that is right. And that was the moment that, that was the moment where the uh, poem, When I Say I Am a Christian was born. It was born out of that. Grieving, the lack of humility in the family of God, the lack of humility, that was what got to me.
2: Do do you feel like it was more from the evangelical side, or was it just in, like I, I know you said like the church universal? But was it? Do you think the grieving process started because you saw what was coming coming out of that? Like you said, the Bible Belt, the evangelical type of church
1: that most definitely hurt me. That hurt yeah. my spirit. It hurt yeah. my heart. Yes, because I I felt uh, we're lost. We're we're just lost with this with this. And, and I felt as though the theology didn't, it didn't match the theology I knew, the God of love that I knew. It just, nothing was sinking. Nothing was matching up. It was such a spirit of fear and judgment and condemnation. So, but, but there was just as much of that in different ways in the mainline church. There, There was just as much. So it took me, um, it took me seven more years. To make my exit, but I exited in nineteen ninety-five. The first big wave, the first big exodus out of the mainline, and the uh, the first big exodus that uh, Phyllis Fickle wrote about—you know, the emergent church—the first, I, I was in that. I was in that, and then in um, and 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 I and I sank into a, a depression, but it, it had nothing to do with my faith. see I, you have to understand my relationship or my sense of God was never linked to the church. So there was nothing to fall apart. When I left, when I left the ministry, there was nothing that fell apart because my faith was not linked to that building or that institution. And it still isn't.
0: Well, and I don't, man, I think, I don't think it ever should have been. I think that's one of the primary mistakes that, that, that I have made. And I, you know, it was something that was sort of handed to me, but that was what I inherited this religious tradition that says um, my faith and that institution so inextricably linked that when one collapsed, it took the other with it. It was, it took a lot, you know, it took a lot to uh, to deconstruct like I did and not lose Jesus. It's, it's a testament to the, to the truth and the veracity of the message of Jesus that even deconstructing all of that stuff. And I, I remember praying this prayer that, you know, and I was telling my pastor at the time, you know, that I was very, very intentionally taking a blowtorch to the whole thing. It all had to go. And if that meant Jesus, then so be it. I was that frustrated. And, uh, I prayed and I hoped and I wished that at the end of it all that he would be there in the ashes and the rubble and thank God he was. Um but I was prepared with the con- for the consequences no matter what. So fed up with what I had um what I what I'd endured. And and honestly, you know what, Carol, I'm not, I'm not sure if you resonate with this at all too, but but not just what I had endured, but what I had also perpetrated in the name of that thing that I had inherited. Because I had done the same things I was upset about other people doing to me. And that sucks.
1: I've heard that, I've heard that from many people, and I can't imagine the weight that that was that yeah, that, that is for you. Yeah, it,
0: it's 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 terrible. It's as bad or worse than you know things that had you know that had been done to us, and it, a lot of it's just very very spiritually abusive. Even though the people who did that would never in a million years recognize what they had done as abusive.
1: I do want to say that being in the ministry for twenty two years. Uh, the the music ministry for 22 years in the mainline churches there is just as much spiritual abuse it's just a, a, maybe a little bit of a different kind and not perhaps not perhaps so um linked to theology the theology is different but the patriarchy and the hierarchy can do a number
0: oh yeah no i totally yeah i agree it's a, it's a, it's a, a maybe a different flavor and that was the one thing and uh, you know and as a male you know Having grown up inside the church, um, I didn't experience that patriarchy, except on the positive side, yeah, right. you know, so it it was way later before I recognized, you know, my gosh, we have sidelined and marginalized and pushed women to the edge yeah. of this whole thing. And, you know, I finally was part of a denomination once upon a time um, that was a little more progressive in their thinking towards women. And they would, you know, gasp, <gasps> they would ordain women and, but. I was actually talking to Keith Giles about this just yesterday. It was a you know, denomination that fully you know, embraced women in ministry, but I never in a million years um, came across a church that was led by a woman. It was always a husband and wife. And, and, and then the clearly implied message here was, well, the man's in charge. And she's the co-pastor and she would carry that moniker, you know, or that title of pastor. But I don't know that I ever ran across one of those churches where, even though this was a denomination that was founded by a woman. And so, um John's like, okay, I'm trying I'm trying not to be douchey and say, okay, four square, fine. It was a four-square church. Um, there's a lot about four-square church I liked, you know. Um, I was a big fan. I liked Jack Hayford. A lot of what he had to say was was good. And and Amy Simple McPherson was that, you know sort of quintessential twenties era um traveling event traveling evangelist. She's just a fire plug of a of a woman um from for all mall accounts. Um but that being said, like I said, as from my perspective as 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 a male going through the whole thing, I it was it was it was easy to miss because it mm-hmm. wasn't negatively impacting me or my family. Yeah.
1: Well, you were actually benefiting from it, so yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. So, matter of fact, that 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 weeded out half my competition for jobs because, yeah. you know, well, that's yeah. so. You know, you it, it's one of those things that you have to become intentional about going. Okay, well, what, so the my the abuse that I that that I feel like I suffered at the hands of institutional church, and I try very hard not to lay this at the feet of human beings. Um, I don't have an axe to grind with that guy. Um, no, even. I don't either. Um, I have a. Because he honestly, what other choice did he have in some ways? he was just following the script that was given to him right. um, and so but the the acts that I had to grind you know f- with the institution and the ideology was 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 the hierarchy. it wasn't so much the patriarchy, it was the pecking order where you know people were just placed above and below, and you know everyone was stratified based on whatever criteria they had decided to come up with, and it was all fairly arbitrary. And so, yeah, that was there was that, and then there was just how much of that institution was obsessed with all kinds of sort of external and super uh, super uh, good God, John, this is going in the trailer. Superfluous, super <laughs> superfluous, um, <laughs> nonsensical stuff. You know, they got so wrapped around the axle of the this all this minutia and all this stuff. And you know, I remember having arguments with the guys about you know, what kinds of movies we should watch and what what kind of music we should listen to and didn't seem to give a rip about the stuff that Jesus actually told us to go and do.
1: Oh, well, you'll appreciate this. As a music director, I was told that if 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 the children's choir took too long to get up and get in line to sing and too long to get back then i had to cut back on the amount uh, then i had to cut back on the time of the timing of the song so if the song was 3 minutes but it would take 2 minutes for the kids to get up and get situated and then 2 minutes for the, church, the kids to get back it's like okay that's too long so wow. cut back on the <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah talk about so, minutiae right
1: talk about, that's why i brought it up
0: yeah it is like like straining at the little tiny particles to go yeah i worked for a guy once who uh who was like i mean our, our services were were ordered you know what i mean yes. Yes. and a matter of fact he's and this is what always cracked me up is guys like this would go to a conference and go to some place and they'd see some Somebody that they looked up to. This is how they did it, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, And so
0: he comes back from this conference and he's like, This is how we're doing this now. And he'd been to some church and this this pastor had scripted his service to the second. It was (laughs) it was that. It was, you know, eight minutes and forty-five seconds, this happens. And then and they, I mean, they had literally um scripted this thing out almost like a television show.
1: I'm you know, familiar and with
0: that. Cues and guys with cameras and doing this. And we I got a guy, I actually, when I was, I worked for that church for a little while. Um, and uh, yeah, we had, I had a director, you know, calling out camera angles and camera cues yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. And okay, and then, and then after, and then every, every, you know, service we would go and debrief and we'd get ripped apart for how many times, how many cues we missed and how, you know, I'd get in trouble. I was a music minister too at the time. And so I'd get in trouble for maybe the rushing the tempo of the song, and um, you know what yeah. I mean. It was like it's like it was, like, it's it was so just not- it's and it's so <laughs> weird to look back on, isn't it?
1: And yes go, because that's so it, surreal. Meanwhile, there are people who don't have food on their table. Yeah. I mean, yeah. th- that's just what used to blow me away. Yeah. What the hell are we doing? Yeah.
0: Meanwhile, yeah. there are people, people sleeping on your doorstep. Yeah. You, know, yeah. Trying, yeah. you know, trying to kick a heroin habit.
1: Yeah. And,
0: yeah. Uh, and we're over here just griping and moaning about, you know, you were 45 seconds late for your your song. It went too yeah. long. And it went, you know, yeah, yeah it's just, it's mind boggling, isn't it? It's, uh, it's how easily and how out of whack
2: the priorities can get. Well, and it's 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 not that hard. It's it's not that divorced from that situation where the congregation also feels that right, and so the congregation now begins to feel how connected to timing and how everything is very specific. And God forbid you be one of those people that walks in late. Oh because, man, yeah. So you, it, it might not ever be spoken out loud. But the congregation also knows if I'm late, I don't want to be that person. I'm just not going right. to go.
0: <laughs> I had, a, I had a, the pastor I worked for in California who will rename nameless. He would, he, when worship started, the doors were shut. And then no one was allowed back in until worship was over. So if you showed up late, you just didn't. You just sit in the foyer until music was, because he wasn't going to be interrupted. Uh, That's the same guy you... who, who, who yelled at a lady and chewed her out in the middle of service because her cell phone went off. And he's like, "Oh no, no, that's okay. I'll stop." You know, and he just like in front of a you know oh. three hundred people congregation calls this poor uh, woman out because her cell phone uh, went off. It was oh. I was embarrassed for him. I mean, every, literally, he was the guy looking like an ass. Uh, yeah. right? But that being said, I mean, it, it's an interesting. Let, let's segue then with this discussion of time and how obsessed we are with it. To let's talk about your book, The Clock. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Okay. So. Let me let me get into that. Um, for sure. Okay. So, so when I left the institutional model in 1995, something never something that never left in the entire 22 years of ministry that I had was um, this idea that I was supposed to do something for God. <laughs> that little kid, that little that little kid that was playing in her backyard that nag, that little nagging thing that there was something I was supposed to do. And here I am leaving the institutional church, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm supposed to do something for God, what what is it that I'm supposed to do? Because now I'm vacating the very place that God on earth is supposed to be, okay? But then in 1996, that's when everything, that's when everything started happening. Um, I had like my bio says i had 4 years of intense instruction and at the end of it in 2000 it started in 1996 october 18th 1996 is when it started and it ended in 2000 october of 2000 and it was one thing after another light bulbs going on all over the place go to go to this chapter this verse this tra- uh, so much instruction there were times when I would, I felt so sorry for my husband during this process because he would come home from work and I would say, uh, this is what happened today. This is what happened. And long story short, at the end of it, all of it, I ended up with a clock, a key and a net. And I knew what I had. I knew the purpose for it. And that is it is not for the church of today which is why I'm not in any big hurry to be out in front talking to people about this. It's for the church of tomorrow. It's for where we are going. It's not for where we have been. And my understanding of where we are going is future generations, the church of tomorrow will look absolutely nothing like we have experienced, nothing.
0: Do you have an idea of of a, What that might look like, or are you just convinced it will be different, and we can't quite wrap our heads around it yet?
1: Well, she's going to look a whole lot more like a net. The kingdom of heaven is going to look like a net. Uh, It's it's not. We will not. We will not be seeing the hierarchy. Mm. The hierarchy must die.
2: Yeah. It will. It will
1: fall. It will crumble. So you know, you had asked about time. I. I, 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 struggle to talk about a lot of these things. Um, as Christians, as faithful people, we are, I don't mean this in a negative way, but we are kind of lost in time. Our beginnings and our endings, we, we don't, we don't have them. What we need to have is a, a good theology of time. And that's what I think this clock, uh, gives us. But here's, here's what I want to say first of all. If people look at the work that I publish and scratch their heads and say, what in the world is this? I want you to know, and everybody who's listening, anybody who's listening to this, I scratched my head too. What I have been shown and what I've been given to put into the body of Christ is necessary, but It doesn't look anything like what we have seen in the past. There's a parable that Jesus, I I have this in my clock book, but let me just bring this out because I know that this is part of what it is that I've got to put in the body of Christ. There's There's a parable that Jesus tells about a friend knocking on a friend's door at midnight. And he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine is visiting and i have nothing to set before him and the the the, the man says don't bother me uh, I, I, I it's late i'm in bed sleeping with my children don't bother me well jesus ends the parable right there so he doesn't give us a conclusion but what he says to us is now this is at midnight that this takes place and If anybody reads the clock book or if anybody sees the clock book, they'll know that we are approaching the midnight hour right now, um, in age to age time, which is a, which is, which is something I'll get to in a second. But, um, Jesus, the way he resolves the parable is he says, now I tell you, the man isn't going to get up and give you the bread that you need because he's because you claim to be friends with him. That's not why you're gonna get this bread. You're going to get it if you ask persistently, and if you seek, and if you knock. And that is what I believe I've got, as crazy as that sounds, and as deluded as that might sound, I believe I have those three loaves of bread. It's illumination. We need illumination at the midnight hour. We, we, we are lacking the, the other parable is the, the midnight hour when the brides, the, the five, the, uh, foolish and the five wise are w- awakened because, hey, the bridegroom is coming and five, and five of them have oil and five of them don't. So we have a shortage of bread at midnight. We have a shortage of oil at midnight. And then we have this. Uh, other situation where John uh, John tells us in the Gospel of John that Jesus appears post-resurrection and the, fish, the disciples are out fishing all night and they don't have any fish in their net. And he says, throw it on the right side. You throw your nets on the right side of the boat. The, the fish will be there. Well, so the church of tomorrow is going to be the historical critical lens that we've been using so far scholarship has been using so far is a left brain lens. We're going to have to switch to a right brain lens. We're going to be looking at many more images rather than words. We're going to be talking about the creation far more than we are talking about the words. Now, I'm not saying that anything will replace the Bible because it won't. The Bible is precious, okay? Nothing's going to replace the Bible, but we're going to see things differently in this book. We're going to all of a sudden have things appearing that we say, man, I didn't know that was there. In terms of time, we are locked and the historical critical lens is a fantastic lens. I have great respect for it, but it is limiting us to the 24-hour perspective of time. And we have got to get ourselves out of that, locked position and get ourselves into a larger perspective of time because there are two realms of time going on simultaneously. Our 24-hour clock that's in our head that drives us crazy all day long because we're counting down minutes all the time. Okay, that clock comes along with a voice that talks to us and it's got authority and that talks to us and the authority guides our lives and you know, that's that's our day-to-day But there is a larger realm of time that the the ancients, by the way, knew about. By the time the Genesis account of creation was written, Hipparchus actually is the astronomer in 100 AD, or 100, I'm sorry, not AD, forgive me, 100 BC, 100 years before Jesus. The astronomer Hipparchus perfected the... Uh, measurement of the ages. So in the Bible, you'll, you'll hear about the age to come or the ages past or whatever. That age is approximately 2,160 years in duration. That's what the clock that I've published will show. But the, it's rounded to 2,100 years. But when the Genesis account of creation was being written, the people writing that, the priestly writers, they would have known about the ages um the hipparchus perfected but he perfected the measurement but he stood on the shoulders of previous astronomers who had already determined what that measurement is and it is the precession of the equinoxes so uh, the astronomers the ancient his- astronomers they knew this measurement so jesus knew this measurement John, the revelator, John in Revelation, John knew this measurement. We continue to look at the book of Revelation through the historical critical lens, and we continue to put it into 24-hour time and lock it into 70 AD and all that other stuff. I'm not saying that's wrong, but what I'm saying is there's two realms of time. And so we have got to look at the book of Revelation through two lenses of time: the twenty-four hour lenses. There's nothing wrong with it, but we've got to get ourselves up into the age-to-age time so that we can see the the revelation of Jesus Christ playing out over a longer period of time. Am I making any sense?
0: Yeah, a little. I mean, it's it's a little confusing, um, as as I, I'm sure you you encounter from time to time, because it's, it's, it's just. It's, it's it's new outside of the box, you know. It's outside and, of the box. Yeah, and 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 you know, you're saying there's a box, there's no box, no. So it's like it's good. <laughs> it, it stretches, you know. Um, one of the things that that I think we I think we talked way back when we met in in Kansas City. We briefly discussed this, just this sort of being locked into, you know, this time. So what I think you wrote a short story, didn't you? Like a children's story. That that dealt with you know a time where there was no clock and there was no measurement of time and then and then, yeah right? it's
1: once upon on measured time
0: okay yeah I, I recall because that was like twenty fifteen or so right yeah is that based on your work in the clock was did you yes
1: it's but it's but it's a condensed kid friendly version for and, sure for sure uh, I would say ages um, maybe a child would have to know a child would have to understand the concept of the clock. So um, I would, and kids don't really grab onto that until second, third grade. Sure. Yeah. So so, yeah.
0: Yeah. It was, but it was interesting sort of just that, um, that initial question, you know, because it parallels with me a little bit what, what I've talked about with other friends So what it's hard to wrap our heads around even because it's so ingrained in us from such an early age, you know, that we are basically slaves to a clock that's ticking. um, And we're so, Tied into the day-night, you know, cycle and all that different stuff. But what it's hard to imagine what what the ancients would have experienced prior. Like what would a what would a what would a what would a life look like that was pretty much just lived out based not on not on you know some abstract time measurement, but just based on the the comings and goings of the sun and the moon and all that other stuff.
1: My research tells me that the ancients, uh, the near ancients who gave us the Genesis account of creation and the uh, Genesis three, where the uh, serpent comes in the garden, okay? Those two accounts tell me that the ancients very much understood that voice, that voice of temporal time. But we did not, as a species, now we're talking ancient ancients, okay? So we're going way back. We did not, as a species, have a clock in our heads until about 12,600 years ago. That's when we really took seriously the measurement of time. And it, and it started because, see, hunters and gatherers, uh, we, we, we moved, we shifted from being hunters and gatherers to being seed planters and harvesters. And that brought with it the desire to tell time because our food was connected to the timing of that garden. How long, how long is, how long is it going to take for this seed to, and that, and, and that's tied to, um, and I hope, I, you know, I hope nobody thinks I'm crazy for saying this, but that's tied to something else that happened in humanity. And we don't often think about it, but, It's tied to when Adam put his seed into Eve's womb and the timing of the, you know, gestation period and when I'm going to have a child. And when you see all of those things came around, they started, we started concerning ourselves with the measurement of time around, around 12,600 years ago. But we really got caught, kidnapped by that voice <laughs> we really got kidnapped around 10,500 years ago and uh, the the clock that i put out ha- is in 2100 year increments and so that's why i i, I talk in 2100 year increments but this still even in the early days of timekeeping we can archeologically look back at humanity and we can see that egalitarian was egalitarian thinking was still a part of human life up until about um, 10,500, 8,400 years ago. And that's when things started shifting to hierarchy. Now, the reason why we shifted to hierarchical thinking is because as a species, if there are so many people in your tribe and you know that you have to go outside of your tribe to get a mate, and you're now decorating yourselves, you're decorating your bodies, you're decorating your tribes so that you can differentiate from tribe to tribe, you also start having something else come in and that is, how can my tribe be more powerful? See, so power, power starts coming into that, the desire. Like uh, Rene Girard talks about, um, I love, I love his work and I love his thinking. Appeasing the gods was all part of that as well. Um, so we, I mean, all, all of it plays in everything that's being taught to us from the great thinkers. It's all good. It's all, it's all giving us the facts that we need to look back. But there was a time that humanity did not measure time. And our measurement of time did lead to tribal, differentiating between tribes, and then by the time 6,000 years ago, uh, by the time that Sabbath day ended, which is something else that, I, it, that's just part of the book that I wrote. We were into pre-dynastic thinking at that point. So we we literally went from hunters and gatherers living in small family units to semi-permanent agricultural communities but still egalitarian to then pre-dynastic thinking and it all came with along with the measurement of time because we see the the big time the big lie that time tells us is that we can control things. And and the and the reason why it's a lie is because we're the ones that are being controlled.
0: Right. Yeah. We, no, that ha- makes, we, that makes sense. we have
1: to we 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 now have to look at that damn sundial.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and we've just uh man, we've just taken that and put it on steroids and you know We put I it mean- on
1: steroids and we also equated time with money. Yeah. Now we've equated time with money, and so now it is, now the clock has, it's not only ringing a bell at the beginning and the end of trade, world trade on Wall Street. It's not right. only doing that, but now we have billable hours. Yeah. And, and it's gotten so bad as try hiring a lawyer. It's billable minutes. Oh
2: yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a good one will charge you a whole lot. I'm I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around a lot of this, um, so I can I have like um, even remotely an educated question within what I'm talking about. Well, first of all, I, I I find it very interesting that it just completely blasts this idea of of a young Earth, right? So we we have to first of all we have to you know within and. It was never spoken out loud in my church, but I know that my church was a young earth church that this, this planet's only been around for like 6,000 years. It can't be any older than that because if you take the Bible literally, that's as, that's, that's where the, the calendar and everything works out, right? So you, you have to like disassociate yourself with any idea of a young earth theology, uh, to, to even remotely kind of connect with this time idea that you have, right? And then on top of that, the evangelical church has done a very good job of explaining anything that talks about ages, it's become it's it's new age, right? It's a it's a new age thought. It's a, you know, the next thing they're gonna ask is, oh, do you do you pray to crystals? Do you do all that kind of weird stuff, right? <laughs> because that's that's where anytime you talk about that there are these broader, larger ages that it, it can't be it can't be biblical, which I, I've always thought was kind of weird. But I guess my question is, Is that were we always destined to kind of fall into this trap or was it kind of forced upon us by, I don't even know where you would say it was forced upon us. So you have this, as hunter gatherers become, they have a point where they kind of come together in community, right? At some point, those communities feel like they need to be bigger than the community next to them. And that's where I think some of this hierarchy comes in. At least that's, that's where I'm kind of getting that you're going. But was that forced upon us or was that, is that just human nature?
1: Well, anthropologically speaking, that's just simply what we chose to do as a species. I mean, you can see it anthropologically. Right. Um, was it forced? When we talk about anthropology, we're talking about culture and the choices that we made in the flesh, in our bodies. There's really two ways to look at this because anthropologically, I guess I'd say uh, maybe we were destined to, yeah. to do that. Maybe we had to experience that in order to want to get out of it. I don't know. But I do know that putting anthropology aside, there is a spiritual component mm-hmm. to the measurement of time that it bothers me more than the anthrop anthropology aspect of it. There's a spiritual component that is that has gotten us to the point of, you live in California, John, yeah. has gotten us to the point of road rage.
2: Okay, I can, yeah.
1: I mean, there is a spiritual component to being wound so tight and to moving so fast and to not being satisfied if anything is in, is remotely too slow. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a, there's a spiritual component to that. And one of the things that I had to laugh about when I saw this clock oh, first of all, let me go back to, to answer one of your questions. Yes, uh, to, your, to address one of your thoughts. I mean, the six days of creation are time before measured time. So you can put any measurement of time out of the, and they just were not measured time. Okay. No one was measuring time. All right.
2: I've, I've always, I've always, that's always resonated with me that this whole idea that the creation happened in seven days or six days of what we consider a day, it never made, it never made sense. Even no. when I was, when even when I was staunchly in church going faithfully, uh, in the back of my head, I was just like, it's just, there's too much evidence. Right. Of, 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 of this evolutionary process that, that the Bible just doesn't, within that creation story, just doesn't allow for.
1: Right. And, and, and the one thing that I want to make sure to say, the, the clock that I have published is extremely well grounded. It is, it is not out there at all. If anything, it's going to bring us closer in to truth than taking us out on any kind of limb. The, the ancient, the priestly writers, the priestly writers gave us a text that is far deeper than what we have been led to believe. In fact, the pendulum has kind of swung from, you know, I know the fundamentalists took a literal literal approach. Well, the mainline churches took a mythological approach to um Genesis one. We really have to come down in the middle of those two, because it's more than myth, but less than literal. What we don't realize and this this is this is how it came about as the four years of instruction was happening, at one point in time, God said to me, and this is a voice now that you hear, and there's no, you just know that it's a nudge, and there's no way to explain that. let say, God, spirit, whatever you wanna call that, the source, whatever you wanna call it, but I felt nudged to go to Genesis 1 and read that text. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, okay, you know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, blah, blah, blah. I mean, because how, how many times do you have to read that story? I didn't expect to get anything else out of it. So I started reading and I got to, and I was reading kind of nonchalantly because I just wasn't sure why I was being asked to read this this text that has been relegated to preschoolers, okay? So, I got to the fourth day in the making of the two great lights, and that's when, oh my God, all the lights came on for me, and I kept on, and, I'm, and I said to myself when I was reading, this text is following the color order of the visible spectrum of light. This text is built on the foundation of those seven colors of the rainbow. Now, at the time when it was, uh, when this was being what I would call revealed, or when the veils were being lifted from my eyes on this, I didn't have the scholarship to go along with this. All I knew is that's what I was seeing. But I have since learned that the priestly writers who gave us the text of Genesis 1, They are the same source that put the rainbow covenant into the flood narrative. It's the same source. There are two flood narratives, just as there are two Genesis stories of creation. And the priestly source put the rainbow covenant into that flood narrative. One, one thing I want to tell you, there's a, there was a, a, there's a professor, Mark Smith, and in 2010, he published the uh, priestly vision of Genesis, of Genesis 1. And I wanna read something to you. For, I have been in contact with Mark Smith on this, by the way. But he talks about why weren't the priestly writers who gave us Genesis 1, why weren't they more explicit about that first light? Let there be light. Why didn't they tell us what light is this? Okay, so this is what he writes. Why isn't the text more explicit about the precise nature of the light on the first day or the light on day one? The answer to this question may have to do with a possible second audience for Genesis one. Let me stop there for a second. The first audience is the illiterate Israelite people. Okay. That's, that's who they were telling this. That's who they were creating the story for. That's the first audience. And then it says, the answer to this question may have to do with a possible second audience of Genesis 1, namely the members of the priesthood itself that supported the composition of Genesis 1. So they're writing for themselves, okay? And he says, for them, there may have been a more covert, yet highly meaningful dimension to the narrative. And I'm reading this in Mark Smith's book, and I'm going, hell yeah, there is. (laughs) (laughs) There is definitely a more covert reason. And it's not, covert simply means it's not openly acknowledged. They did not openly acknowledge that they were creating this text with a foundation of light underneath it the seven colors of the visible spectrum moving from violet into blue, into green, into yellow, into the blood of fish and animals, the living creatures, into the red blood of the, of the, of the animal kingdom, and then into the purple of the gifts of, of dominion and freedom. They did not, did not mention that. In other words, they wrote their task, let there be a firmament on the second day. Let there be a firmament. But they didn't say, and hey guys, by the way, the sky is blue, and let there be vegetation. Oh, and hey guys, by the way, the vegetation is green. The only mention of color in the whole text comes at the very end of the text when the priestly writers say, to the human that is created, see, I give you every green plant. Wow. That's the first mention of color in the Bible.
2: Uh, as I delve more into physics, um, astrophysics, that kind of stuff, you know, because it really, it's always really been fascinating to me. And I find this idea, and it's come up in a, conver- a, a at least one conversation that Nat and I had where, uh, there's a problem with Genesis and that, that there is light before, there's light before there's a sun within the creation story
1: it's not but before as I, fire though
2: but, but as i as i as i look at it connecting to the big bang or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. the creation yes. of yes. everything which would be the creation of time itself right because prior to the big bang there is no time but most physicists now say that as you know we're talking thousands of seconds I mean, we're not even millions of a second right we're not talking about as this as this expansion happens one of the first things that happens is there's massive light from this Big Bang universe. And that actually the young universe or the young whatever this is, there was light everywhere. And it was a light that was beyond this idea of a sun or a star or anything like that. So as I start connecting it to a much broader picture of, for lack of a better description, time, as time begins... I, I, it, it no longer it no longer seems improbable to have light before what we would say. Oh, the sun's in the sky. That's what gives us light, right?
1: It's one form. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, fire. C- please consider fire. Mm-hmm. Fire. Fire first. It doesn't require sun or moon or stars.
2: Sure. Well, so and, your, and that, your big
1: your big bang is fire, right,
2: right? So this massive explosion, or whatever they want to call it, this massive expansion of mm-hmm. energy, right? And and we know that uh, when energy is excited, it creates heat and it creates light. So uh,
1: and and God has consistently throughout Scripture, if we want, if we want to believe, revealed God's own self through like th- things like. The, the burning bush
2: right
1: it didn't right, burn um right. the fire above the tabernacle the fire there's there's been there's been lots of instances and the tongues of fire at Pentecost, lots of ways that God has revealed god's own self or God's own spirit or whatever, through 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 light that is not the sun, and yeah.
2: Do you see do you see that um as we move towards whatever this future church may be um one of the things that we might do is kind of reconnect to this idea of the ancients uh, it seems like um as we delve into some of these ancient writers not only of Christianity but of other of other you know indigenous peoples that we find out that they all had a very strong connection with nature right very strong connection with um something beyond time and outside of this realm of this, what we construct as time. Do you see that maybe that's one of the things that we will kind of reconnect with?
1: That is a perfect question. <laughs> and the answer to it is absolutely 100% yes, because the omega is the alpha. We are going full circle. We're not on a linear. We're not on a telos that is linear. We're on a telos that is circular. And so, yes, it will bring us right back to the ancients. And the, it will rejoin us with the love of the imagery of creation and, and all of that. And with but, 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 but. And I have to say this because, <laughs> I, I, okay, I have to make sure that I say this. Because we aren't the same. We have traveled through time. So we are not the same. So we are going to create to it, but we're to the, to the, to the Omega, the same, but in a different way than the ancients created, or (laughs) I'm sorry, than the ancients connected with it because we, we have more knowledge and we have more wisdom now. We're, we're not the same people. Okay. So, so we, we have learned. So when we reconnect, to that we will be cr- reconnecting uh, well <laughs> we'll be reconnecting 6000 years later we're on a day by the way we are on a day <laughs> there were the 6 days of creation there was the seventh day that transpired all during the hunter gatherer the whole thing that we talked about with tribal that was that was the seventh day We started the eighth day of creation with the murder of Cain and Abel. That's the day we are still on. We have gone through three. If you, if you're a football fan, we have gone through three quarters and we are now ready to enter the fourth quarter. When, so you, Nat, you had asked about the church of tomorrow. Um, you know, what I envision. I, I can, I am, I do not have a crystal ball and would not even dream of, of saying that I do, but I know where we are right now. We're at the midnight hour and I know what we have to do right now. And the, you've struggled a couple of times on some of the podcasts to say, you know, we're using this term deconstruction, but you know, I wish I could find a different term for it. Um, maybe I can reframe that a little bit for you if you're, if you're willing. The what I see is going back to the teachings of Jesus, the parable that, he, that Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a wheat field. And while the, the wheat is planted by the master, and while everyone is sleeping, an enemy comes along and sows weeds into the wheat field. We are at the end of that, and I'll say it, John. I know it's not meant to be. Jesus started the age with the the age of Pisces is the age that Jesus started, and we are at the end of Pisces, and we're going into the age of Aquarius. But um, this is not a new age thing here. It's just an act of, it's just the procession of the equinox, okay? (laughs) It's it's not new, new age, okay? There's no crystals involved. <laughs> um.
2: Let me let me let me say one thing really quick. Uh, first of all, I totally believe in these uh, in these connections of ages and stuff. I, I just I was voicing an opinion of other yes. people. I I under, I completely understand as we're moving into the age of Aquarius. Uh, yes. it's something that I that I that I understand. Um, I actually agree with. Um, I I it's something that I and I think the ancients also understood. So yeah, I just yeah, want to okay. add that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank
1: you for clarifying.
2: And now <laughs> um, I want to sing, though, John. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've
0: twice you guys said, have, have said the dawning of the age of Aquarius and <laughs> the musical hair just goes through my head. This is the dawning of... I know, of. Anyway, I know, so. I know. <laughs>
1: anyway. But anyway, the, but anyway the, sweet, the sweet field, that's okay, the sweet field. Um, we are at the point now where we have got to Pull the weeds from the wheat field. And that's what we're doing. That's what deconstruction is. It's taking all the false teachings. And, and here's the thing. Jesus gave us, in the parable, Jesus gave us the steps that need to be taken in the order in which they need to, to be accomplished. Okay. The first step is to collect the weeds. And that is what everybody's doing right now. But it's not going to be an overnight process. This is going to take several generations of people to get rid of the weeds in this wheat field. The, the false teachings have to be pulled out of the garden. The next step then, is binding them and put, binding them and throwing them into the fire to be burned. That binding coincides with what we're going to also need to do with the binding of Satan, and that's—I uh, love when Thomas J. Ord says God can't, and and I say yeah, God can't because God needs our cooperation with some th- some of these things. But um, and then and then the third step is gathering the wheat into the barn. Okay, so this whole process. This whole process is going to take the whole age of Aquarius that we're coming into. It's the whole church of tomorrow that this work will be done. So it starts with collecting, and then binding, and then gathering the wheat. So we've got a full age uh, ahead of us. You see, we're so used to thinking in terms of the 24-hour clock that things have to happen fast they're not happening fast. They're happening very slowly. Yeah.
2: So I can see some people kind of bristling a little bit at that too, because then this says, okay, so if we have another whole age ahead of us, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Then obviously when you talk about the evangelical church and their need to prepare us for this second coming of Christ, this... this uh this point where we will be pulled up into the clouds and brought to this heavenly place, right? That's that seems like now with this idea, we're on a different trajectory. That we're on a different, um which, by the way, I I agree with. I don't I don't see this. Um, I, I the whole second coming is is a whole other. It's a whole other podcast episode, probably. But how do we how do we? Is it almost. I could see it as someone saying this is kind of defeatist. Like we, okay, we we're just at the beginning. We're not going to see anything of, we're going to see no fruition from this because this is another whole age that uh, okay. we have to work through. Right? Okay. So
1: here's, here's, here's what we need to understand. Each of us is journeying with Jesus on our own separate individual journey. That is one journey that is being taken for every single human being. And that is a journey that will be completed. We're talking about the collective journey, the collective journey of humankind, the species that we're on to complete this day that we're on, to complete the desire of God for whatever God wishes for this day. But what is important right now for the church to know? Go to your Bibles. Open it up and Google, not Google, go to whatever Bible app you use and search midnight hour or middle of the night, either one, because some translations say middle of the night, others say midnight. Midnight. Search the word midnight, and you will come up with 12 things that absolutely need to be understood now. Now, that is what, so there are things that evangelicals if there are things that the evangelical church, people who, who are still active in, in that thinking, there are things to do. Look at that midnight hour and memorize that midnight hour as to what all the things are, are that happen, because every single midnight hour will show you what changes are occurring at the hour of midnight. And every single one of them is a change. A lot of them are a change from sleeping to rising. Look at that! It, look, you know, look at those twelve midnight. I, I mean, I don't know what else to.
0: <laughs> no, it's a good. I love it. It's a good. It's a good place to jump off, and at the risk of of cutting anyone short, um, we have no, a we fine. have a hard out. We got to get. We got to get going, it's man. I, it's fascinating, Carol. Um, and it's it's uh it's beyond me i'll 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 give you that you are the first of of 30 something guests we've had on the show who <laughs> have just like thoroughly i'm like i am stumped i i'm going to go back i read i read the book that you gave me when we met in Kansas City and i i think i caught a little bit of it i'm going to go back and, and and look at it again cuz uh um but i'll tell you what the kernel i'm pulling out right now that was really that's really helpful um i like the i like the 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 parallel of pulling the weeds, um, because that's so often what, so sometimes what we experience as deconstruction can be so, It's not. it's not as precise as that. Sometimes it's just taking a sledgehammer to the whole damn thing and seeing what survives. And so I do like a little bit more, I think most of us who've gone through it have gotten a little bit more precise in our in uh, what we're deconstructing in that mess, so what you said resonates, that makes sense as we're kind of going and going no, false teaching, false teaching, let's just pull these things out without just doing damage to the whole thing underneath it
1: and the purpose of that is to preserve the wheat, so yeah. that the wheat yeah. can continue to grow and be seen by the world
0: yeah, no, and I think I think that makes a lot of sense that's a, that's an interesting and and potentially really valuable way to to reorient ourselves to um please, to please we're looking do. at that I like it, I like please it a whole do. lot. So, for that, I'm super appreciative. I would love to talk to you more at some point down the road um, I'm certainly looking forward to i think i guess twenty twenty two when when your next book comes out kind of completes that cycle right okay
1: what, what i what I want to do i I want to say one last thing
0: sure of course
1: since these three things the clock, the key, and the net were given to me freely, I have always had the desire to put them into the body of Christ freely
0: Wow. Okay. Because
1: I believe they should be given without anybody laying down a dollar. And so my academic work, which is the clock book and the, and the key that's going to be coming out in the net, that, that, that's a different story. But what I wanted to do is condense it. So I have created, it's being edited right now. I have created a PDF that has all three things in it. A clock, the clock, the key and the net. Three loaves of bread at midnight. Mm, okay. In a condensed version, and it will be free to wow. anyone who wants to look.
0: All right. Well, if we can get a link to that, we will make sure and put that link in the show notes, um, and we will definitely uh, let all all of our people know. And you're in our you're in our Facebook group, so you can certainly let yeah. people there know that that's happened. And that that's a beautiful thing. I know when you when I first met you, you you gifted me that book as well, and I I could sense that that was kind of your heart was that you just wanted to get this out there and. Um, and I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, this should not be. A, this should not be about money. Well, should not be about money.
0: Love it. I love it. Um, with with that being said, man, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and and uh, and wind this down. I am so appreciative of your time. Thank you Thank for you. blowing our minds because uh, yeah. I can I, I can speak for John and myself right now. Just I can tell the look on his face. It's like yeah, there's stuff to process here, and that's good. I love I love that. I love. I love coming away with it, from a conversation like this. With yeah, I'd, um, I'd say one of, the, on. one of the one of
2: the one of the biggest comments that I get from people like within the Facebook group that we have is they may not always agree with everything that that has been brought on to our podcast and with uh, different guests that we have, but it's definitely one the the overarching feeling is that it's it's definitely giving me stuff to to think about.
0: Yeah, for um, sure,
2: and challenge it challenges people to step outside of that box, right? Which I think is very, very important. I think one of the biggest steps we need to take is to realize that we're in a box of whatever making. And sometimes we need to step out of that box to see how potentially that that box that we were in was either harmful to us or harmful to others. And uh, at the end of the day, you might disagree with some of the stuff that people are saying or bringing to the table. But I think it's super important to challenge ourselves and challenge each other to see the world in a, in a little different light.
1: And stepping out of the box is scary.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, but absolutely.
1: I, I can promise you everything I'm putting out there in the body of Christ is nothing but love and light. Mm, right.
0: And that's awesome. We love it. That is a perfect way to to end this. Thank you, Carol. Uh, everybody, Carol Wimmer, make sure and um, check her out online. If you're not in the Facebook group, you should get in the Facebook group because Carol is a, is a contributor there and she's always uh, got great stuff to add. Um, to what's going on there i've I've appreciated her work even if I don't fully understand it um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it no I, if I could if I could grasp it in the first read then you know it probably I, I wouldn't be still thinking about it so I love the fact that it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna um, challenge me to, to think about it some more and I, I appreciate face- that
1: I have a friend on Facebook that's on his fourth read okay. So there you go. So I'm
0: not so behind. I'm not so far behind the curve. Then okay. All right. Well, like I said, we'll we'll link to everything in the show notes. Um, uh, We appreciate you coming. Thank you so much for everything that you do. We'll say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this is not church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit Patreon.com/slash ThisIsNotChurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.